Hello and welcome to the Gloucester Vineyard Church's weekly podcast. We're creating a community that brings hope and joy to Gloucester and we're thrilled that you've downloaded this message. This term, as a church, we're reading through the book of Matthew together. Each week we're reading a section and then unpacking it on the Sunday. This week, Daniel is starting the series off by unpacking chapters 1 to 4. Each week there will also be a recording of someone reading the section for that week, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. So, without further ado, here we go! So I wonder how many of us here this morning have ever actually tried to read the Bible. I wonder how many of us have done that logical thing of starting right at the beginning of this book and chomping our way through it. I wonder who else has had the same experience that I've had of starting at the beginning and and actually doing pretty well at first. I mean, this is the new year and if we're ever going to try and read the Bible, this is a great time to pick it up and give it a go. But when you start going through the first book of the Bible called Genesis, there are some really good stories. Okay, granted, there's loads of confusing bits and there's some really weird stories, but on the whole, it's actually a pretty good read. And it's not actually that hard to read either. You know, you tend to constantly have this feeling that there's more going on that you're just not understanding. And incidentally, you'd be right, but that's okay. That's the way the book is designed. It's not because you're reading it wrong. And then you suddenly get halfway through the second book and all of a sudden you grind to a halt. It suddenly gets a bit less compelling, shall we say. Starts talking about the designs of tents and loads of weird rules. It gets super hard to get through and you think, come on, come on, you can do this. You make it through the second book, you can do this. Maybe the next book won't be quite so bad. And then you hit book three and it's just more of the same. And so you peek ahead to see what the next book is like and it's called Numbers. And you're like, Come on! What a boring title! And you start reading that and it's just like lists and lists of names of people. You flick forward to the next book to see if there's hope and find to your utter dismay that it's actually just basically a recap of the first four books. As if that stuff needed recapping! So you may well do what I've done in the past and you think, you know what, I'll come back to that at some point. I'll just skip ahead to the good bit. I'll go to the bit of the Bible where Jesus shows up and I'll start from there. And so you hit Matthew chapter 1 in the second part of the Bible. We call that part the New Testament. And what are you greeted with? An enormous list of unpronounceable names. And you're like, no, come on. What is going on here? I feel like the Bible needs a better editor. You know, skip to the good bits and leave out all the lists. And then after the lists, we finally get into some familiar territory. We read about Jesus being born, which of course we've just celebrated last month and I've still got the waistline to prove it. But even then, we, when we read that story slowly and carefully, we can read some really weird details like a virgin giving birth. Like, why is that important? And, and Matthew, the chap who wrote the biography of Jesus' life, keeps saying this weird thing. He keeps saying this occurred to fulfill what such and such a prophet said and you realize that he's actually referring to that really long tricky bit of the book the bit we call the old testament and you realize to your utter horror that when matthew was writing this book he's assuming that you've read this long tricky bit in fact he's actually writing it assuming that you've already read it loads of times in fact he's assuming that you don't have a netflix account or any other way of entertaining yourself so all you've done for entertainment as a family for your entire life is read this long tricky bit of the book over and over again and discuss what it means because 
if you had been reading nothing else for the last 20 years of your life, then this opening few chapters of Matthew is just dripping with aha moments. It's absolutely laden with little words and phrases which are trying to tell us something about this person, Jesus. All these little hints and in-jokes are trying to convince us of one simple fact that Jesus is the person that this broken world needs, that the world is a messed up place and that we need divine intervention and that Jesus is here to offer just that intervention. So at this stage, we as Westerners start getting a bit fed up because we're like, well, dude, if that's what you want me to know, then why don't you just say it? You know, what we want Matthew to do is rather than write this biography, we want him to write a scientific dissertation. We want Matthew to say, look, guys, Jesus is God get in line, behave like this, and here's my scientific proof. In fact, most of us would probably just have preferred a tweet with all the bare facts in it. You know, why all the frill and detail? Just get to the point. If your message is that Jesus is God and he's come to rescue the world, then uh, just hurry up and say it, you know? Well, the fact of the matter is that that's actually exactly what Matthew is trying to do. He's trying to convince us that Jesus is God and to teach us about what God's like. But to do it, he doesn't use science and logic, even though we wish he would. He uses history and literature to make his case. Now, to us, that might seem a bit nuts. But for Matthew, he was using the means which were available to him at the time to communicate what God was saying and doing. And we would do well to give Matthew the respect he deserves and read what he's written on his terms. We shouldn't be reading this book expecting Matthew to speak to us using our modern ways of thinking. That's both unfair and actually a little bit disrespectful. It's like us going to France and expecting everyone to speak English. No, we don't do that. We respect the French and we do our best to speak their language, very poorly in my case. And the same is true when we step into the Bible. We do well to respect the authors and do our best to speak and understand their language rather than expecting them to speak ours. I think if we're not careful, we can actually be quite arrogant as modern Westerners um, to think that Our way of thinking and doing things is the ultimate pinnacle of human thinking and acting. And, you know, certainly we've made some good progress, but I am convinced that in 50 years time, our kids are going to be looking back at us and asking, what on earth were you thinking? But we're just doing the best with what we know and with what what we can do at the moment. And the same is true for Matthew times a thousand. He is writing this book that we're reading about 2000 years ago. There is an enormous gulf of time and human learning between us and him. The fact that we even have a copy of what he's written in our language is an absolute miracle. So let's agree to give Matthew the respect that he deserves and read his account with our minds open. He's doing his best with the tools and understanding that he has to convince us that Jesus is God and is here to change the world forever. So let's dive in together and see if we can find out what Matthew has to say about Jesus. Okay, so far in our reading plan, we've been reading chapters one, two, three, and four. Now that's quite a large chunk. Don't worry, they're not all going to be quite that long. And in the story so far, we've had a very long and dull list of names, a very lovely and familiar story about Jesus being born. We were introduced to a chap called John the Baptist, who was pretty strange. Jesus gets baptised and then immediately spends some time on his own in the desert, where the devil shows up and gives him a hard time. And then Jesus comes out of the desert, calls some some guys to start following him, and then he starts going from town to town doing some amazing things like healing people and telling people that the kingdom of heaven is here. 
Now, those are the facts. They're the events. Those are the bits that we're primarily interested in, isn't it? You know, what did Jesus say and do? And of course, those things are all really important. Probably the most important thing for us to get to grips with. But mingled in with all those events and facts, there are some really odd little details which we tend to skip over because we're looking for the facts. Details like all those names and the way that Matthew has mentioned how many generations it was between one thing and another thing. Like, what's all that about? You know, the fact that Mary was a virgin. Like, that's strange. Is it important? Some of the things about Jesus going to Egypt and the horrible story about baby boys being killed. Like, why is that in there? The fact that when the Holy Spirit shows up, he looks like a dove and he's hovering over some water and was thinking, I'm sure I've read that before somewhere. And when Jesus goes into the desert, he's there for 40 days and gets tested by the devil. And you're like, why such a specific amount of time? Is that important? And we read all those details and we think that it's just window dressing on the facts. When in fact, that very window dressing is what Matthew is using to make his point. For Matthew, the facts of Jesus' life are almost more like the window dressing on the significance of who he thinks Jesus is. Because all of those weird extra details to a person who's read their Old Testament several times, to a person who has no Netflix account, all of those, they leap off the page. With every one of them, it's like an alarm bell, an alarm bell going off in your head. It's like, I've read that before. I've heard that before. I, I know another story just like that one. Because Matthew is a clever sausage. He's really, really good at what he does. He is a master storyteller. He's using stories the reader already knows to tell a new story. He's retelling stories from the first part of this book, but he's shoehorning Jesus into them. He's doing all of that to give us a framework for who Jesus is and why we should care. This is such a brilliant storytelling device that filmmakers still use it to this day because it's so effective. Now, who here enjoyed The Force Awakens? Now, obviously, I'm recording this before times, but I know that every hand in the air is up because Star Wars The Force Awakens was an epic film. I loved it. It was absolutely wonderful. And one of the reasons I liked it so much is that it used this storytelling technique so well. In fact, it did it so much that loads of people criticised the film when it first came out as basically being a carbon copy of the first Star Wars film called A New Hope. Let me show you what I mean. Here's a video of several of the key scenes from each film. Now, the frame on the left is the first Star Wars film called A New Hope, and the one on the right is A Force Awakens, which is the reboot from 2015. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm very excited. Okay, so as you can see, spaceships approaching a planet, a couple of droids beepling around, you've got some chaps with some guns, some big explosions, and then, ah, oh, stormtroopers. So useless. They all run out as well. Okay, here we have uh, an android. Somebody puts a secret message in a robot. Very exciting. Oh, lots of smoke. Oh, and here's the bad guy, dressed in black, emerging from the smoke. Here he is. Oh, some strangling going on. Oh dear, some violence. Uh, oh, oh, yep, that person's been captured. That's not going to end well. And off goes the droid into the desert at the same time. Oh, yeah, we're back in the desert and there's a speeder. Very nice. Oh no, the good person is captured and is on the ship. And bad things are going to happen. Oh, he looks very menacing. 
Uh, and he looks menacing, but oh no, my goodness, he's a goodie. I bet you didn't expect that. There he is. Uh, oh, yep. Some more stuff on the desert. And oh, wouldn't you know, it's the Millennium Falcon and they're escaping on it. There they go, running away. Now, some of these are uncanny. Now, these are just like shot for shot as they fight off these TIE Fighters. Look, watch this. I mean, come on. Well, I'm enjoying myself. I don't know if anybody else is. I might need to watch Star Wars after this. Anyway, everyone's very pleased. Off they go, zipping into the uh, into the distance. And look, look, Han Solo's back. He's back on the Millennium Falcon. They're hiding under the floor. Okay, I think we all get the picture that uh, there's clearly something going on here. And these guys definitely know what they're talking about. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. I'm just going to want to nerd out, and I really want to watch Star Wars now. But if you're a sci-fi nerd like me, and you watch The Force Awakens, you end up thinking, thinking, hang on, this scene is just like that scene from A New Hope. And then you notice another one. And then a character will say something from A New Hope, or you'll hear a little snippet of the music from A New Hope. And all of a sudden, your imagination comes alive, and you start making links and forming theories about the significance of the events. Who is Rey? Is she a Kenobi? And as a nerd, you don't care that there's so much similarity because that's what makes it so good. Because the two films are not carbon copies of each other. Each film has a different theme and message, and by using recognisable scenes from the last film, the filmmaker's not just retelling the story for a new generation, he's developing the ideas from the first film and telling you secrets about where the story is going. Or at least where the story should have gone if the following two films hadn't been total toilet. But we can argue about that when we see each other next. The whole point of this is to say that this is exactly what Matthew is doing in the first four chapters of his biography. He is retelling stories and moments from the first part of the Bible, but with Jesus in the main role, in order to communicate his point to us that Jesus is the Son of God and the one that we've all been waiting for. Because the reality is that when Jesus arrived on the scene, there was actually someone who the people were waiting for. When Jesus showed up, he wasn't starting a new religion called Christianity. He was stepping in to fulfil a role which people were looking out to be filled. It's like when you're a kid and it's dinner time and you have this expectation that you're going to be fed and you're asking, who is the person who's going to feed me? Or when you get home from work and the house is a complete bomb site and you're asking, who is the person who is going to clear all of this up? Or when someone said they're going to pick you up and you're stood outside in the dark and the rain and you're waiting for them to show up and you're asking, who is the person who's going to pick me up and take me home and help me get dry? You're yearning for the person we're expecting to show up and do what we need them to do. And Matthew is telling that story on a cosmic level. He's making the claim by telling the story in this way that Jesus is the guy who those people 2,000 years ago were waiting for. But he's also the guy who we, 2,000 years later, are waiting and looking for. Because the Old Testament, the long bit at the beginning of this Bible, is creating a space in our expectation. It's creating a hope and making promises that someone will come and fulfil our expectations and our hopes. Here's a quick video from our friends at the Bible Project to show you a bit more about what I mean. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except 
there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promise king receives this wound because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back, and Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, 
Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus' power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. So there's an awful lot in there, and there's an awful lot in Matthew chapters 1 to 4, and there's just too much for us to cover this morning properly. But I hope if nothing else, that's kind of sparked your imagination, and maybe even inspired you to go back and reconsider that long chunk at the beginning of the Bible with some fresh eyes. Like I say, we don't have time to unpack all those little hints and clues that are hidden in Matthew chapter 1 to 4 this morning. But really quickly, that list of names at the beginning is giving you the family history of this snake crusher that they mentioned in the video. The one that's promised in the first pages of the Bible. Matthew is saying to the readers, look, God's promise is coming true. You can trace it through his family history. Now, the list starts with Abraham, and Abraham was promised by God that his family would be a blessing to the whole world. And you read the first chunk of the Bible, and that promise isn't fulfilled. And you're left asking, is God going to keep his promise? And Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus is the resounding, yes, God is going to keep that promise. He is going to bless the whole world through this man, Jesus. And when Matthew tells the story of Jesus going to Egypt and that weird story about the baby boys being killed, we're supposed to remember a character called Moses who rose up to save people from slavery because Moses was also born in a genocide in Egypt. And then Moses led the people into the desert for 40 years to be tested, just like Matthew tells us that Jesus was tested for 40 days. We're supposed to be realising and thinking that Jesus is like a new Moses. He's here to rescue people from slavery, just like Moses did, and lead them into freedom, just like Moses did. Or finally, and maybe this is my favourite one, when Jesus gets baptised and the Holy Spirit hovers over Jesus like a dove, it takes you back to the very first sentences of the Bible, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God hovers over the waters when the world is made, and the Spirit hovered over Jesus when he got baptised. Matthew's saying that Jesus himself is an act of new creation. So as you can see, in the first four chapters of Matthew, they are absolutely dripping with this claim that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's the one that we've all been waiting for. That Jesus is the one who came to rescue this broken world and to fulfil our long-felt hopes. 
And so when you read the first four chapters of Matthew, with all of that in your head, you realise that Matthew is making a bold claim about this Jesus guy, that he's the one we've been waiting for. He's going to be like a new Abraham, bringing blessing to the whole world. That he's like a new Moses, freeing people from slavery and oppression. That he's like a new Adam, a new creation, starting again, and yet bringing everybody back to the way it was meant to be. But so what? Now, I personally feel much better for getting all that off my chest, but that's because I'm a massive Bible nerd, and I really love this stuff. But why should we care? Why should we Gloucester Vineyard Church care in Gloucester in 2021, in the middle of our pandemic? What does this have to do with our everyday lives? Are these just some nice facts, or does this scratch us where we're itching? You know, to me, when I read these chapters, I think about hope. It reminds me that this guy, Matthew, was writing at a time when people were actively waiting and hoping for things to drastically change. He was writing to a people who knew that the world was off kilter, not knowing the way it was, um, not working the way it was meant to work. They were hungry and expectant and hopeful that something would happen to put it right. Or rather, they were expecting that someone would happen to make it right. They were waiting for a person to show up who would initiate a new best way of doing things. A person who would set the world rights. Now, Matthew is taking the long view of history. He's looking back over hundreds and thousands of years and announcing the moment when that person showed up to bring ultimate hope. That's what Matthew is trying to say in these first four chapters, that... Jesus is the one who has come to start the revolution, to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. And for us in Gloucester, at the beginning of 2021, we find ourselves in much the same position. We're all so aware that in many ways the world is still broken and still waiting for that ultimate day when God will finish his act of creation and restore everything to the way it was designed to be. And can't we all relate to longing for that day to come, when there will be no more loneliness or mourning, when there will be no more sickness or disease, when there will be no more aggression and strife, as we've seen in the States this last couple of weeks. And as we read this week, uh, as we read this week, Jesus shows up onto the scene announcing that the kingdom of heaven is here. He's showing up and saying that in him, that future day has arrived and is arriving. He's saying, the moment you've all been waiting for has started to arrive. That hope is here if you will choose it. Now, this kingdom of God is what we're going to be talking about every week this term. Asking questions like, how can it be here and yet not here? Like, what are the values of this kingdom and how can we play our part in it? But for this morning, I simply want to encourage all of us to listen to Matthew when he takes his long view of history and choose to lean into hope. To paraphrase Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. ever so slightly, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards hope. This morning, I want to encourage us that we have a choice as individuals and as a community to choose which way we're going to lean. Are we going to lean into the hopelessness of the current situation? With all the bad news and uncertainty, are we going to lean into fear over what this year is going to bring, especially all the financial difficulties that this year will bring? Are we going to lean into anxiety and worry over our children's educations? Or are we going to choose to lean into hope? Are we going to choose to lean into our hope that God has the whole world in his hands? Are we going to choose to lean into the hope that God is capable of bringing something beautiful and redemptive out of this COVID mess? 
Are we going to choose to lean into the hope that the kingdom of God has arrived and is arriving, despite what we may see around us? Are we going to choose to be people who seek the kingdom of God, to look out for it, to promote it when we see it, and to choose to be part of it in our great city? Don't give in to hopelessness today. Lean into hopefulness. Because in Jesus we find the best reason in the world to hope for a better future. Matthew has started to tell us the story of the man who stepped into history with the ultimate source of hope. So let's take some time this morning to lean into that hope, to connect with that person as we sing. Let's take a moment, each of us in our hearts, to look again at Jesus and decide if, that's, if, if it's something that we want to do to follow Jesus, to listen to him when he speaks, to bring our brokenness and our hurts to him for healing and to choose to live life the way that he lived it. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer now and then we're going to sing to Jesus who is our great hope. So I just want to encourage all of us now to take a moment of silence. We're going to close our eyes and we're going to put out our hands as if we're going to receive a present. And this is just a way of our bodies communicating to God what our hearts want to do, which is to receive from him. And we're just going to take a moment to be silent. And in our hearts, we're just going to invite Jesus to come and speak to us. We're going to just say in our hearts, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. And in this moment of resting in God's presence, we're just going to take a minute to think about those ways that we're leaning into hopelessness, the ways that we've allowed the news of this week and the previous weeks to cause us to be anxious, to sabotage our hope. We're just going to remember those moments and those things which are keeping us awake at night. And we're just going to take a moment now to listen to what Matthew is trying to tell us in the first four chapters of his book. That Jesus is that great source of hope. That we do have a hope. And we're going to choose to lean into that hope now. Father God, we thank you for the hope that we find in Jesus. Would you help us this week and in the coming weeks to lean in and live out that hope that we find in Jesus? We thank you for your great plan that one day you will bring all that you've made back to the way it was meant to be. 
and we ask that we could see more and more of that new creation in our lives and in our city in the weeks and months and years to come. Would you make us into a community which is always seeking that truth? Amen. Okay, that's all for this week. I hope that blessed you and that you find it helpful. If you've enjoyed this message, please share it with a friend. And if you'd like to join in with what we're doing here in Gloucester, you can join us at one of our Sunday gatherings online. All the details you need are on our website, gloucestervineyard.org.